This this is the, a, a highly competitive category. Oh, that is by far the cleanest opening of the envelope we've seen so far. Yeah. Hopefully it hasn't been tampered with. Yes. Here we go. All oh, right. Well. All right. Here we go. The award goes to... It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. What a fantastic event it's been so far here at the 2015 Data Awards, honoring the most interesting stories and people in data this year. Hopefully you caught part one, but as is always the case, we saved some of the bigger names for the end of the show. So let's get on with part two. I'm still wearing the tux. Everyone's had a couple drinks in them at this point. Here we go. We are back from commercial break. The Data Awards continue. Everyone's dressed really great. People are enjoying their uh, mini crab cakes and the other kind of little little food you get at award ceremonies. But here to present our next award is uh, 538's own Ben Castleman, economics writer and many other things. Ben, thank you for doing this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what award are you here to present this, this is the, a, a highly competitive category. The defender the betting of markets data. Are, the betting markets are going crazy. That's yes. right. This is the the defender of data, elected official division. Okay, so the award for defender of data. I'm handing you the envelope. Please right. do the honors. Open it up. This has been, you know, uh, who is it that who is it that like seals these results and like That's doesn't the, let anyone know? Pricewaterhouse, Pricewaterhouse has been monitoring yes. this. Well, it's just tricky to get it out of there. All right. This is a highly competitive category. We, uh, we had to go all the way up to Canada to find any elected official willing to defend data. This goes to Justin Trudeau. All right. The new prime minister of Canada is the winner of the 2015 Data Award as defender of data. Why? Well, so as, as uh, regular listeners may uh, remember... Uh, the uh, surveys, government surveys, are under a lot of attack uh, around, uh, certainly in the U.S. Uh, and, uh, frankly, around the world. Uh, up in Canada a few years ago, they had ended the mandatory long-form census, uh, which is actually a really important source of data up in Canada, kind of the equivalent of the American Community Survey down here in the States. But this is the, the, the way that a government gathers demographic information about its citizens. Absolutely. Critical information about income, about demographics, all sorts of things. Uh, they had made it voluntary. They basically killed the mandatory census up in, in Canada under uh, the previous government, Stephen Harper, who never competed for uh, this award, it must be said. <laughs> we would have maybe changed the the, the, the framing of the award <laughs> had he uh, had his party won re-election. But um, so they made it they made it from mandatory, which is what it is in the U.S., right, right, to voluntary. Why? Was that was that that big of a deal? It sounds like kind of a small thing. It's not exactly like we've got people chasing, uh, you know, government officials chasing down people who failed to fill out the census. But we saw an absolute plummeting in the uh, in the percentage of, of Canadians who returned the census, and it had uh, really substantial impacts. We talked about this on a previous episode at more length. But what this led to was really a loss of information about rural areas, about um, uh, some minority groups, about other really sort of disadvantaged populations. We just didn't get good information about them but this is this is a good news award this yes. is not a bad news award right we were giving this award to justin trudeau because as soon practically as soon as they took office they came back in and they said we are restoring 
the uh, the mandatory census for 2016. This is next year. They're going to be conducting the census. Your, your Google News alert for Canadian census was pinging. Uh, pinging, the day. popping up. That's right. Doesn't everybody have one of those set up? Uh, that so so it was really you know one of the first things that they did. They made it a real priority. Uh, and at a time when we are seeing so many attacks on government data, it was great to see a government willing to stand up and uh, and and try to uh, to get to get better data. Ben, thank you for helping present this award. Thanks so much. And congratulations to Justin Trudeau. I'm sure a close listener of this podcast as well. The Data Awards roll on. Carl Bialik is here to present our next award. This is, uh, I'm very excited. There's a lot of speculation about who's going to pick this one up. A lot of contenders. A lot of, yes, unfortunately, <laughs> lots of contenders for the Stephen Colbert Memorial Award of Distinction in Truthiness. Now, this is a memorial award because Stephen Colbert no longer traffics in truthiness. But nevertheless, there was a lot of truthiness out there in the data world this year. So, Carl, we please do the honors and present this award. I'd be honored. Oh, that is by far the cleanest opening of the envelope we've seen so far. Yeah. Hopefully it hasn't been tampered with. And the winner is? Michael LaCour. Michael LaCour. So some people know that name. Some people don't. But why are we giving him this honor? So he was a grad student at UCLA, and he had a finding that grad students would kill for. It made news all around the world. He found that if you send gay people to canvas to try to raise support for same-sex marriage, they could encounter people who do not support it at all, and they can sway many of their opinions, and that will last, not just the next day, but if you follow up with them long after, which means if you're trying to raise support for a ballot measure, let's say, to legalize same-sex marriage, you have a new great way to do it. And the, and it also, I mean, I, you're right, it got tons of attention. I heard about it on, on This American Life, you know, how many social science papers make their way onto, you know, huge radio shows. Um, but it also got at this notion that human connection, one, you know, direct connection with someone can change your mind better than almost anything else. And so there, were, it, there was just this feel-good element around it and this notion of like, oh, wow, you know, uh, we can all get along and we can convince each other and all we need is just, you know, to connect with each other as, as humans. It was it was using data to reaffirm our humanity, which right. is such a wonderful use. Of yeah. It. But, but <laughs> unfortunately, he's winning this award for a reason. Yes. It's not the award for truthfulness. It's for truthiness. We don't know exactly what happened and he hasn't yet told his story. But researchers who are trying to basically follow up and do related work try to figure out how applicable it was in other situations, started talking to him, learned more about what he did, started becoming troubled by what he did, spent a long time and a lot of effort looking into it and came out with a paper showing that he probably didn't do what he said he did and his findings probably aren't true. Right. And and maybe not even not true, but there's on the range of things that there's speculation about what he did. He may have, you know, really faked data, like almost, you know, a, an actual kind of almost laudable amount of work to fake the data. And again, we'll say we were going to award this the Excellence in Fiction Award, and we we decided that, you know, we're only mostly sure that this is fiction. But nevertheless, it was this uh, this moment where this study that, as we were saying, everyone felt good about. Uh, 
now had some real questions about it. Now, of course, the flip side to this, and we could have awarded an award that was more sort of spun positively, was that someone went and tried to replicate this, which I think is the silver lining here that, you know, everyone could have just sort of like wiped their hands and said, you know what, this is a a laudable study. This comes up with conclusions that a lot of people are behind. This got a lot of attention. Let's let's feel good about it and move on. But someone out there said no. Yeah. And you can really spin this either as a victory for science or a very scary near miss for science. So we should, even though we haven't technically awarded them this award, which they wouldn't want given its name, we should name these scientists who've done this. So it's David Brockman, Joshua Kalla, and Peter Arano. And they put themselves on the line because here's this paper that was published in Science. The co-author, Donald Green, very respected researcher, uh, they were Without saying it's fraudulent, they were saying there are serious problems, serious reasons to think the most likely explanation is this data isn't real. And David Brockman's talked about how he came to this as kind of a last resort. He tried every other possible way of debunking this paper without publishing it himself. He went to other researchers, asked for their advice, and they basically said, it's not worth it, even if you're right. It's just not worth going after a big name. Mm. He went on online forums, and he basically gave people there all the clues so they could do it anonymously, so they wouldn't know it was him, and they didn't do it. And eventually, he just decided, even though I'm young, I think he's now 26 or 27, this is something I have to do for science. So what's the reason that people didn't want to take that risk to, to poke around into this study? I think there's just not a lot of social capital in the sciences in debunking something that is seen as a great success in the field. But I think his story may change that because he has said that even though he was so worried before it happened, he was overwhelmed by the positive reception he got. Now, if he was wrong, he wouldn't have gotten positive reception. And they were very careful, very thorough. They did great science. But because they did, they got hundreds of congratulatory emails, great press coverage. We wrote about it. Other people wrote about it as they deserve. And so I hope this creates a lesson for science. There's no way that you can replicate every study that's published. There are just too many. But if there is a study that seems almost too heartwarming and too good to be true and is being covered widely and is affecting the world in real ways, maybe it is worth it to spend the time trying to replicate it and you will get personal benefit from it. All right. We have an honorary mention or a runner-up in this category on truthiness uh, because we just can't go without mentioning this person. So who's our runner-up in the truthiness category? Oh, we have no envelope. We have no Uh, (laughs) envelope. He does not even merit an envelope. But I'll just go off the top of my head and say it's Donald Trump. Yes. So Donald Trump wins an award for truthiness. And, and, you know, truthiness may be too generous of a word, to be perfectly honest. Um, But this is a a candidate that we're seeing as people who kind of like empiricism and like sort of strong footing when you talk about facts. Um, This is a candidate that is kind of – driving us nuts in that regard. Well, he's stating things that look like facts. So I think he, he is truthy in that way, in the way Colbert meant. Uh, right. That was the original just definition. Wrong. <laughs> you feel it in your gut. So, and that's as much of a data point as anything. Yeah. And so that's what makes it true. And he's citing numbers on his Twitter account. And then when he's told they're just wrong, he's saying, you think I check everything? I mean, I think this is a year where we're seeing in the campaign that it's becoming really effective for candidates to not own up to mistakes, but to blame the media, to say it's a ridiculous question, to cite somebody's anecdotal impression or memory of something. And he's at the vanguard. So he's a deserving runner up. All right. As we go into 2016, I suspect the truthiness will continue. But Carl Bialik, thank you for presenting this award. Thanks for having me. Nice talks. Thank you.
And now it's time to move on to our next award. We're having a magical evening so far. Everyone looks great, including Simone Landon, who is here to present our next award. Simone, welcome to the Data Awards. Great to be here. Uh, you are here to present the award for best data collection the government isn't doing yet, but should be. So there's a That's lot right. of factors here. We will get to all of those elements. But first, please open the envelope and tell us the winner. Yes. Here we go. All right. And the award for best data collection the government isn't doing yet, but should be. Goes, it's a joint winner. It goes oh, to <laughs> the Washington Post, uh, the Guardian U.S., and, and a couple of other sites that are doing similar work. Um, and it's further work on tracking police killings of civilians. And so the the Guardian does this through a project called The Counted, and they're tracking all people killed by police in, in 2015. The Washington Post is focused on police shootings in particular, deaths from police shootings. And why is this work that's being done – right, so the, the name of this award is the government isn't doing it yet. We'll get to the yet in a second. But why is information about police violence something that newspapers have had to do? So the the – Government, federal government is supposed to, um, but hasn't been doing a very good job. And that's part of sort of the problem with sort of all crime statistics in general. Um, but we, we found out uh, last year, and, and this has gotten a lot of tension since Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson last year, um, that statistics on police violence are particularly hard to come by. And that's because police departments voluntarily report them up to the FBI, and the FBI only tracks something that it calls justifiable homicides. So those are incidents where, you know, the police department feels its officers were justified in using lethal force. So it doesn't count the ones where that you might want to know about where it was mm -hmm. unjustified. <laughs> and justified is obviously uh, disputable in a lot of cases. Um, and so the, the FBI's count, you know, is around 400 or so every year. And what we've seen even just this year, from from the Guardian and from the Washington Post is that we're well over um, in the Guardian's count a thousand people killed by police and, and the Post has over nine hundred shot by police um, so the FBI is significantly undercounting and they they've now admitted to this and they've acknowledged that it's a problem and that these uh, news organizations are doing a better job and they've committed uh, to sort of expanding their efforts and doing better data collection but they won't begin to have sort of a fuller report until the end of next year you know to my mind I think and I I did a What's the Point episode about one of these efforts mapping police violence with um, Samuel Sinyangwe, who does that project. But to my mind, this story is like the most interesting kind of data story of the year because it starts with uh, a story that's about much more than than data. It's about you know racial injustice, our relationship with the police, uh, about violence and all these things. But nestled at the heart of it is this kind of central data question that's just like we just don't know. And so often it's like hard to even tackle such a complex issue if you just don't have your head around the actual data. Mm -hmm. is, is your sense that there's like active – obfuscation of this data or it's just that like it, there was never a coordinated effort to say all these local jurisdictions need to be collecting it in the same way mm -hmm. and sharing it and all those things mm -hmm. well uh i don't want to i don't want to speculate on obfuscation mm -hmm. um but i think what you're what you're getting at jody is like not only is it hard to sort of say what the scale of this problem is but it's hard to understand um without having the data it's hard to understand what patterns we might see within it and so we might know even that 
police kill a thousand people a year. Um, but without having greater information, we're not going to know if, for example, they're um, they're killing them all in one part of the country, or they tend to kill women, or they tend to kill people who are mentally ill, or they tend to kill people who are unarmed. And that's the other sort of great thing about these data collection efforts. And besides the Washington Post and the Guardian, you mentioned. Um, mapping police violence. There's also a site called Killed by Police, and, and their efforts are, are feeding in, these crowdsourced data collection efforts are feeding into the work that The Guardian and The Post are doing. Um, and those news outlets are then doing further reporting to get some of those details on demographic information, sort of about the context for these incidents where people are killed by police. And telling the sort of human stories that lie behind these numbers. Sam Sinyangwe from Mapping Police Violence talked about how he kind of wants his work to have two tracks, which is people who want to sort of know the data and get their head around the statistics can can uh, access that but then one of the things he has to do when he is trying to verify this information is actually sort of report out people's stories because you hear a news report about someone with this name who was killed but in order to find out you know which person in in this city with with a particular name uh, and to and to verify that information you need to go on like social media profiles mm-hmm. he said he talked about how he would do that and find out when people stopped posting and see tributes to their life on their Facebook page or whatever. And so it really does, I think, marry in in the best of ways, even though these are awful circumstances, the kind of merging of statistical analysis and storytelling about mm-hmm. real human beings and how this stuff affects real people's lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The really important thing, the reason that we're giving out this award is that it's really important that this data be collected so that we can look for those further stories and do that further analysis. So this is called the best data collection the government isn't doing yet, but should be. And that's because there is kind of a news that, that advances this a little bit, which is recently what the FBI announced that they are going to up their efforts to collect this kind of data. So what do we know about those? Right. So the the FBI said even that they were embarrassed (laughs) that these news organizations had sort of gotten there first and that the the quality of the data that they were keeping was so bad. Um, And so there's a lot of a lot of initiatives around crime data and and, um, policing data in particular got going this year. The White House has its police data initiative. Um, Yes, the FBI basically said we're going to expand our efforts and and take kind of similar approaches to um, what these news organizations have done. And what they do is they look at crowdsourced news reports and then follow up and do their own reporting to sort of verify. They say they want to collect some of the similar demographic information about the victim, about the perpetrator, um, about the incident. Like they're also, the FBI is also interested in collecting better data on violence against police officers. So also officers who are killed in the line of duty and the circumstances around those incidents. So definitely something we will keep our eye on in 2016. And of course, the huge challenge of getting different police departments to collect this data in a way that then can be merged and shared and sort of work its way up into a unified database that's accessible. That is going to be something that we will definitely keep our eye on. But uh, Simone Landon, thank you for coming on and helping present this award. Thanks for having me and congratulations to our winners. The Data Awards continue with actually our only remote guest of the evening. This is, uh, you know, I guess you're you're getting like piped in on the big video screen in the hall. But Christia Schwanden, who uh, writes for 538 about science but lives in Colorado, is joining us to present the next award. Christy, welcome. Thanks, Jody. 
I overnighted the envelope to you, so you have it there to open. All right, uh, I've got it here in my hands, right? Exactly. Uh, so what, what award are you here to present? I am presenting the award for the best reminder that science is hard. And who is our lucky recipient? The Open Science Collaborative and their Reproducibility Project. All right. Congratulations to them. Huge that congrats. A, that yeah. is a mouthful. But tell us what the Open Science Collaborative Reproducibility Project uh, actually taught us in 2015. Sure. This is a pretty amazing project, actually. What they did is they took a uh, 100 studies that were published in 2008 in psychology, and they gathered a bunch of teams. And these are mostly volunteers. They had um, over 270 authors ended up on the final paper. And what they did is they took these 100 studies and they tried to replicate them. And they didn't just sort of do this at random. They went back and spoke with the original authors and got feedback and suggestions on how to do this. So they were really, this wasn't a game of gotcha. They were really trying trying hard to replicate and reproduce the original studies in the best way that they could. And the results of this initiative were pretty sobering. Uh, they found that only 36% of their efforts to reproduce a study succeeded in reproducing the original results. So there's been sort of this growing sense in science in general, but in particular in psychology, that psychology has a reproducibility problem. And by that, I mean, there's this growing worry that some of the results that are being turned up and being published can't be reproduced, and they may not be as reliable as we thought. And so this project, what it really was trying to do is quantify the problem. First of all, say, you know, is this in fact a problem? And second of all, if it is, you know, can we quantify it to some degree? You know, again, this is 100 studies from one year. So I mean, it's pretty damn comprehensive, but it's not comprehensive across the whole field, but it was kind of a snapshot. And one of the things to keep in mind is, you know, if people took the findings of these studies as gospel, which is part of this is saying, don't do that, we shouldn't take the results of the reproducibility study as gospel either. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that a study cannot be reproducible. It doesn't mean that the results are necessarily false or the opposite of what they concluded. That's right. And there's been, you know, there's been a lot of navel gazing about this and a lot of discussion about it. But just because these didn't reproduce doesn't mean that the original effect didn't hold or doesn't exist, you know, some of some of the findings here could be explained simply by regression to the mean. And uh, by that, I mean, you know, you, you do a study and you get a very extreme result. If it's along a continuum, then you would actually expect that the next time you try to measure this, that you would get something less extreme. And that's actually what they found, you know, of the studies that did reproduce, um, which is only 36% of them, by the way. But of the studies that reproduced, they found a smaller effect size than what was found in the original study. And as I mentioned, this all kind of comes in a context of a year in which there seem to be a lot of questions about science. Now that we're at the end of 2015, do you want to just sort of take a step back and be like, what What was this year like for science? Yeah, I, I actually think it was a great year for science. And it was a great year because even though there were all these things, there was the liqueur scandal, you know, there was Which this, won an award earlier this evening. That's <laughs> right. It sure did. It sure did. It deserved one. And even though the study wasn't able to replicate all of the studies, what's happening now that I think is really exciting is that people are starting to pay attention to these problems. And they're really making an effort now to say, look, we have some problems with the way that we're doing science and let's try and address them. 
the Open Science Collaborative, Brian Nosek's group, is doing a lot of work to try and address this problem. One of the things that they're doing is really promoting open data, open methods, so trying to make science more transparent. But do you worry that this sort of cascade of studies that have been questioned, there was that study about uh, mortality rates among middle-aged whites, which got tons and tons of attention, and then it got tons and tons of attention because there were some questions about the methodology. Do you worry that that's going to become a narrative of its own, that science is broken in this fundamental way? Well, I think we already had that that narrative, right? I mean, you had this thing, if you, if you just grab someone off the street and ask them about that science, they'll say, yeah, you know, today they're saying coffee's good for me. Yesterday, they, they said it was bad. I think there's already this sense among the public that, that science is sort of back and forth and, and sort of unreliable in some ways. And I think that by actually talking about this stuff and examining it and saying, hey, you know, we found this interesting result and now we're taking a closer look and we're seeing that it's more complicated. I think that that can only benefit the public discourse about science. All right. That's 2015 in science. The best reminder that science is hard to the Open Science Collaboration. Christy Ashwandan, thank you for joining us as part of the Data Awards. My pleasure, Jody. We've come to the end of the night or the day or whenever we're recording this or whenever you're listening to this, but we have come to the end of our 538 2015 Data Awards and here to present, I know, I know we made it. The like network is freaking out because we're running (laughs) long and they have like a rerun of Cheers coming on or whatever. And Jody dressed nice and didn't tell the rest of us. And I still look really good at the end of the night in my tux, Well, we just look like bums here in sweaters. Thank you for Um, that. So here to present our final award is Allison McCann, visual journalist at 538, member of our Hot Takedown crew. Allison, thanks for taking part in the Data Awards. It's been a wonderful evening. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, this category is dumbest data that we definitely need. All right, here we go. The award goes to... Mona Chalabi. All right, so Mona, our uh, departed colleague, Mona Chalabi, wrote a column here at 538 for a long time called Dear Mona, in which people would write in with their, uh, I don't know, weird <laughs> questions that then she would answer strangest, very- Strangest thoughts. She would answer them very earnestly and rigorously through data. Mona is now at The Guardian, and we encourage people to go read her work there, but as a sort of- um, owed to her and all the dumb data that we never knew that we needed that she uncovered in 2015. Let's talk about some of our favorite Dear Mona revelations. So I think it's worth noting how prolific the Dear Mona column was. I think she wrote something like 47 Dear Monas and all of them are incredible. Um, But we picked our favorite three from this year. Um, And if we could talk about the ones that didn't even make the Dear Mona would be a totally different category of dumb data. The premise they all fit into this is this like, am I normal? Uh, I think is what we wanted to call Dear Mona. So the first one was, uh, Dear Mona, what percentages of marriages in the U.S. are between first cousins? Uh, And Mona researched that about 0.2% of people in the U.S. are married uh, to not first cousins. Actually, it's second cousins. Uh, I think it is illegal in most states uh, to marry your first cousin. So there is no research on that. Um, The closest she could find was for second cousins or closer. So I guess that might... But 0.2 are... Marrying someone pretty close in yeah, the family tree. Yeah, that's about 250,000 people in the U.S. So that's, you know, it's not a 
So when you heard that number, that was maybe slightly high. I feel like this got a lot of traction, this piece, and people were like, oh, that's actually maybe a little higher than I expected. Yeah. Um, she expanded beyond the U.S. too a, a little bit, found some research in like Australia has like a kind of crazy high number um, of – It's an island. <laughs> you know, makes sense. Marriages. Anyway, uh, the next one that I really liked was, uh, dear Mona, what is the total amount of faces and names that an average person can remember? Oh, that that's actually like – that's not dumb. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's not like I'm normal. That's like, I guess, like, am I normal if I can only remember like right. three? Right. Uh, well, I think my- everyone is secretly worried that they have a terrible memory. And so, like, that's the am I normal thing. It's just giving you context for this thing that you've always wondered about in isolation. Yeah. So what did she find? So she had to do a bit of unpacking because obviously faces and names um, are quite different. Uh, names sort of fall into this, like, acquaintanceship volume, which a lot of people have researched. Um, and they find that's anywhere between sort of 2,000 and 3,000. And that's sort of just, like, the number of uh, acquaintances that you will, like, have in your lifetime, kind of people within your I don't know, social network. Yeah, just kind of like pass life. through your social yeah. network. Yeah. That's a lot, man. 2,000 people. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe so that, it, I guess. That was much higher than uh, faces, as you can imagine. Uh, much harder to do facial recall. And that number is about 150. Um, that comes from evolutionary psychologist Robert Dunbar. Uh, you might know this as Dunbar's number. Uh, which yeah, is you one- might not know it as Dunbar's <laughs> number, but now you do because yeah. uh, you're listening to the podcast. And that 150 is actually based on uh, the number of Christmas cards that it, uh, the average person will send. I think it's like 153.2. So that was his methodology for finding out kind of like how many people do you actually feel close to is the number of average number of Christmas cards sent yeah. out. That's, and that's then, a like, clever methodology. Who And those people are faces that you basically sure. will never forget. Uh or right. forget at some point. Yeah. Uh, so that was Faces and Names. And the last one, which I think remains the best headline uh, ever on 538, which is uh, Dear Mona is the Moon to Blame. Um, and that comes from a reader question that they had asked um, her if the number of live births increased uh, under a full moon. I guess someone had had a nurse friend and then. Yeah. My favorite part of that question was just at the end being like, I have a friend who's a nurse who tells me that it's true that she gets more visits at, during full moon, which is like the perfect way. Like, I'm going to take this one anecdote and then I'm going to research the crap out of it and try and find some answers. But I. I actually don't remember. Did Mona find answers to whether the moon uh, yes, is Yes, the blame? answer was definitively no. Good. But um, I think the best part of this was kind of working through how you would get there and being like, this is a crazy thing, and then finding actually that there were, was research literature on this. Uh, I think a group in Spain had looked at this before. Like, it had gone beyond myth to being enough to, like, warrant, like, three papers um, to just, like, a totally insane random thing like the full moon. Right. So that's the other great part about questions like these is, one, you get all these incredibly random weird questions but then you also realize that like so often someone has actually done (laughs) research about that very thing so someone researched whether the moon led to more injuries and hospital hospitalizations so anyway allison thank you very much for doing that all the dumb data we didn't know we needed thank you you for having me and congratulations mona congratulations mona your statuette is in the mail and uh you can hear allison on hot takedown every week on tuesdays And I guess that brings us to the end of our awards show. So everyone get home safe. Thank my agent. Thank you for watching. Thank you for watching. I don't know. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. That was really fun. Thank you to all the writers at 538 who participated. And I'll say that if you haven't gone on our site and seen the special website we built for the Data Awards, you really should. I'm 
pretty proud of it, actually. Kate LaRue, Gus Weserick, and Paul Schreiber deserve a lot of the credit for making it look so pretty and working with illustrations and art and sound integration. So thank you to them. There are also mini essays from our writers about each of the topics. So check it out even if you have listened to both parts of the podcast, 538.com slash data awards. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Joel Warner helped mix and produce this episode. Tony Chow helped with video. Special thank you to Galen Druk for editing help as well. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. You can download the theme song he wrote for this podcast on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Once again, congrats to all our big winners. We're taking the last week of December off, so we'll be back with a new episode in two weeks in 2016. 2016 is going to be a big year. We'll visit a farm. We'll talk about the history of election data. We'll travel to Iowa for the caucus. And that's just in the first couple months of 2016. Thanks to all of you who listened and reached out and helped spread the word this year. I can't wait until next year. See you soon. What's the point, listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together, we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and ha- hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store, search for Hot Takedown. To find us, we'll talk to you then. Do it.